there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Mike, what's the, I'm sure you've been asked a hundred times, but I'm going to make it 101. What's the origin of the bang call? It's it's not a uh, anything great story. It it just comes from when I was a student at Fordham. I um, not only did I as a student broadcaster, I broadcast a bunch of the games. Um, uh, Michael Kay was was another one of the broadcasters I was with there. Yet, and of course, the, the the great Yankee announcer uh, Bob Papa was the broadcaster there. Charlie Slows, who's been doing um, Major League Baseball for years, um, so we would all. If we didn't go to the game, if we weren't broadcasting the game for the student radio station, we would still go to the game. You know, so like Fordham played St. Peter's in New Jersey, Fairfield in Connecticut, obviously Manhattan in the Bronx. So you could drive to almost every single game. There were a few games that were, you know, out of town that you would have to fly to. But any game that was in like three or four hours driving distance, we would go as fans if we weren't doing the game. So I went to just about every Fordham game my sophomore year. And uh, when Fordham had a couple of really good outside shooters, and whenever they would hit an outside shot, as a fan, you know, I'm all pumped up for my school, I would yell out, bang. And I, I, it just became like a tradition for me when, when, when one of the Fordham players would hit it. And then I, I tried this, you know what, maybe I'll use that on the air. And I actually used it on the air for a couple of Fordham radio casts, and I didn't like the way it sounded and like, ah, nah, I don't, I don't think I like that. So I stopped using it, and I didn't start using it again until I started doing um, uh, television play-by-play, and that's actually Sports Channel was the first time. So uh, I tried it at first, didn't like it, and brought it back. And and then after I started doing a little bit on TV, some people said they liked it and thought it was good. And one of the reasons I left it in is because it's usually in a big moment when the crowd's going crazy. And when the crowd's going crazy, you don't want to be screaming a whole lot of words to try and get over the crowd. So it's a good, quick, concise call that gets you in and out when the crowd level is so, so high because the human voice is not made to be, you know, screaming for 15 seconds. I don't have that strong a voice for that. So it turned out to be a really nice, quick, concise call to, to amplify a big moment without talking too much. I I love I love that I love the the analytical breakdown of of that call and meanwhile it's iconic I mean nothing screams modern day NBA Finals more than than that call and so as fans I you know we thank you that that, that you can give us that that was dope. What did you learn about the business then that that you still reflect back on sometimes now? Man, it's um, it's about really the storytelling 
Um, I think when I became a play-by-play announcer, um, a lot of the broadcast is steeped in not just the stats, but but the storytelling, um, you know, to uh, get to into locker rooms uh, before games. And when I was a, a field reporter, um, a lot of the legwork was getting inside the locker room, asking guys how they prepared for the game, you know, what's going on in their lives away from the court, um, how their families are doing, um, what their relationship with the coach is like, what that game means to them, how big is it in the big picture of things for them. Uh, I think those were some of the fundamental things that I learned uh, coming up through the business that some of the best broadcasts uh, beyond the stats, whether a team goes over 27 from three-point range or 27 for 27, it's it's the journey, right? It's, uh, you know, it's Ennis Kanter waking up at four in the morning during Ramadan to drink uh, 16 ounces of water or 32 ounces of water and have uh, some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for energy because <laughs> it's Ramadan and he can't eat or drink during the daylight hours and to know that at halftime he's going to go into the locker room and finally get a chance to eat and drink because sundown was officially at 8.36 p.m. that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are some of the backstories that, for me, I learned really enhance a broadcast. You know, I work with Hubie Brown. Nobody is better tactically than he is. He's going to take care of the nuts and bolts, the X's and O's, and, you know, my job is to set him up for things like that. But uh, I, I feel that part of my responsibility as a play-by-play announcer is to, you know, talk about a, a Damian Lillard who, um, you know, is a, was a two-star athlete coming out of high school and couldn't even get on an AAU team that was any good to get recognized uh, on the circuit and to see where he is now. Those kinds of things, I think, ultimately for the casual fan, uh, make the casual fan at home say, wow, that's, that's really cool, that's interesting. Getting to call games with Hubie Brown, I mean, as, as fans – um, and and as basketball lovers, like we appreciate Hubie on a, a whole nother level. And obviously he's turned into this iconic figure over the last couple decades. But working with him as much as you have, what are some things you've learned about the game? It, not just calling games, but also just spending time with him uh, during the day leading up to a game or the night before. You know, the guy's, the guy's mind is as sharp as a tack. Um, unbelievable how he... Uh, dissects games and, and the things that that I've learned is you know the NBA is very much a matchup driven game and um, in, in particular now the way the games evolved with the heavy emphasis on threes um, it, it's kind of at the opposite end of you know what I see Hubie kind of preaching sometimes uh, he'll, 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 he won't understand a team taking uh, a three on two and running a layup and hitting the foul line 45 degrees cut in and take the layup on a three on two as opposed to a guy hitting the foul line and flaring out to the corner for a three pointer. Um, he, he's quick to be able to point out advantages that teams might want to be looking at if, if they're looking at being successful in a game. Um, I think uh, another thing I've learned is he, he he's really partial to uh, running stuff to get something uh, as opposed to being more of a kind of a random continuity type of uh, coach. But, uh, you know, what, what he sees is uh, so next level, guys, um, in terms of, um, 
you know, what teams need to get to, um, guys that uh, can give them an advantage when they need it, um, defensively uh, being able to uh, be precise. And, you know, I guess in summary, like, it's the details that really add up to wins in the NBA and the teams that actually have time to um, practice those details on, on closeouts, um, on contesting shots, on, um, like I said, um, hitting, hitting uh, you know, entering the ball to the wing before you try and get into the post as opposed to just throwing it into the post and it getting picked off. Uh, those little things actually matter. I think that's probably the bottom line on, on what I've learned in, in all the years that I've worked with uh, the great Hall of Famer, Hubie Brown. How late is he staying out at night on the road? Be honest. Hey, <laughs> nobody works the lounge better than he does. Honestly, you you get him with a glass of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot, and and uh, to hear him recall some of the the stories of when he was a first year assistant coach with Larry Costello, uh, working in the uh, NBA um, and dealing with Oscar and dealing with uh, Kareem, and uh, it really is uh, a few generations back that is eye opening and. His ability to recall is amazing, one thing, and then to recall it with the detail that he does um, is great. He's, he, he is the best storyteller uh, in the NBA that I'll ever be around. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who is the group of great hangs on the road? Um, man, Doug Collins is in my top five. Um, Hubie's in my top five. Um, you need a great wingman to have a great meal and talk basketball. That's PJ Carlissimo. Okay. Uh, <laughs> PJ's in the top five. Um, and then Charles Barkley has to be in my top five because everybody that he's like the Pied Piper. He's going to peep up, pick up a group of people as we walk or as we <laughs> dine or as we have cocktails. He's, yeah. it, it, the group of five will turn into a group of 50 by the night and, Everybody will have Charles's phone number, and everybody will be his best friend. Uh, he'll be he'll be the fourth guy, and then um, you know what? I, I got to put my um, who else do I have to put on my all uh, hangout team? You, you, don't have, guess... you don't have to get five. Okay, okay. I was okay, going to try and give you five. a starting five, but I'll just I'll throw myself in there too because my stamina is pretty good. As the dad says, "Hey, that guy played with Michael Jordan. That guy won a championship with the Chicago Bulls." You know, there's a allure to that. You know, you see the, the 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 look on somebody's face when they hear that, especially a young kid. That, you know, if I didn't stay in Chicago or if I would won a championship in San Antonio, that wouldn't exist. You know, everybody's always going to know about Kobe, Tim Duncan, you know, the the top players. But there's guys like me, you know, mid level guys, I guess you could say that. You really need to think about, you know, how your career plays out. Because do you want to be looked at as a guy that, you know, hey, in my case, played 13 years and then nobody remembers you. But, hey, I made a lot of money and I'm good and I drive a nice car and live in a big house. (laughs) Or do you want to be somebody that, that, that people remember for certain reasons? Because a lot of these guys, you know, if you remove players out of Philly, or you remove a guy out of Denver, or you remove a guy out of Phoenix, people don't know who you are. And I'm not saying that, hey, it's nice to have people remember who you are, 
but I just feel like I have something that's special that uh, unfortunately other guys don't have. And, you know, Patrick Ewing and I are, are friends, but there's a certain part of him that eats away every time I come around because, you know, he knows that I have something that he doesn't. That's a championship. And I'm not saying, well, it was because of me that we won the championship, but I was part of that team. I made the necessary sacrifices. I put in the work. And that's something that, unfortunately for him, when people talk Patrick Ewing, they talk about, man, one of the best centers of all time. But Charles Barkley, one of the best forwards, power forwards, players, however you want to talk about it. But Carl Malone, one of the best power forwards of all time. But so, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate. But I have something that, you know, I can always hang my hat on. And something that I truly believe that I was part of that is special. And because of that, people remember me. It's not that I'm so hooked on people remembering me, but it's the reason why that makes me proud. The Jordan Rules book comes out in 1992. And I know a few years ago, someone wrote an article and said it was the ultimate Woj bomb at the time. Um, being a member of the team and all these revelations, I mean, you pick a page on on the Jordan Rules book and there is just gossip and chaos and all, all this wild stuff going on when we didn't hear about it regularly through social media. Um, what was it like on the team when all this stuff came to light um, in Sam Smith's book? You know, a lot of it, some of that stuff we didn't know about, that, you know, all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes. I mean, at this point now, everybody knows who Sam Smith's source was. It was Phil Jackson. And Phil Jackson was the great manipulator of the media because back then there was no social media. There was no cell phones initially when all this stuff was happening, internet. So your only source of news was what came out in the paper the next day or what you saw on the uh, television that night. So those guys were kind of at the mercy of the Bulls organization and Phil Jackson. So Phil was very conniving in the things he let out. He worked relationships with these guys. He knew who he could trust and give information to. And it was one of those things you always thought, how did Sam Smith get this information? Who's he talking to? And everybody always denied it. Not me. Not me. Not me. But, you know, eventually it all came out. But, you know, it, and the one thing I'll say about the Bulls is we were not dysfunctional at all. I mean, we got in fights a lot, and it wasn't just, you know, me getting punched by Michael Jordan or Steve Kerr, or, but that was something that had to do with competition. That's how competitive our teams were. That's what made our teams so good. But at the same time, you had a bunch of guys that were mature enough, who cared enough about winning, that they realized that, you know, I can't win without this guy, or I can't win without that guy. I may not like that guy, and I don't hang out with that guy off the floor, but I need that guy. And, guys, and then the guy that initially figured it out first was Michael Jordan. And then once he figured it out, everybody else figured it out, and then the Bulls started winning championships. We had altercations, and I don't want to use the word fight because there's really the NBA players don't fight. We had altercations in practice all the time because of how competitive it was. Not only were you fighting for playing time, 
but you're also fighting respect from your teammates. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have days off back then, and we didn't have, you know, uh, load management and stuff like that. I mean, we practiced every day. We basically took one day off a week, and then if you played a game on Sunday, which we did a lot, we got no days off because Sunday was usually that day off. You know, we didn't have all these rules in the collective bargaining agreement, you know, that you have to have days off and you can only do this and you can only do that. So, you know, it got hot, it got heated, guys were tired, but yet that carried over to make us a better team that when we stepped on the floor the day of a game, the night of a game, you know, as long as that guy next to me could help me win, I didn't really care, you know, I'm not saying he didn't care about that individual, but, you know, I may not like him, but he can help me win. And when this game's over, I don't have to hang out with him. And that's given how, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I'm saying, and that's what made these teams so good and so competitive and how we went 62 and, and 20 and 72 and 10. I wasn't on that team, but that's just, that was the culture that had developed within that organization. That was dope. Do you have a a microcosm, a, a detail that you remember about Iverson that can sum up what it was like being around him every day? Uh, well, I don't know. Like, it's probably nothing different than what, you know, fans watch. But just to sit there, and at the time, we sat courtside. And to watch a 165-pound player who was just an incredible athlete go in there against those big guys and slither around them and get knocked to the ground and get a bucket and get back up and just do it repeatedly time after time was just an incredible, uh, you know what I mean? You were watching one of the greatest players at that position, at that size ever to play our great, our game. Um, and yeah, he was phenomenal just to get shots of like Larry Brown used to say, to get 20 shots, 25 shots off, in an NBA game, just the attempts is an amazing feat in and of itself. So, yeah, he was a special talent. And uh, to watch him, you know, call for the crowd by putting his hand to the ear and then get 20,000 people to respond, mm-hmm. it's not unlike what Ben Simmons did last night or what Joel did. Imagine that. That's like Mick Jagger standing at the – that's like a solo artist, not the Stone yeah. or Bruce Spring. That's like one guy standing on the stage and getting that reception. Uh, you know, it's – it's pretty neat. Being up close for that, did you did you get to hear the, the Iverson trash talk or other guys trying to trash talk Iverson? Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean like yeah, and yeah, and it's like being next to the huddle. I, I heard all those Larry Brown huddles, but you never were like, So they're gonna run a roll you know what I mean? You never really <laughs> yeah. brought that, you know, it's just uh part of having your antenna up of, of being there and Oh, yeah, Allen going up against Gary Payton or, or Kobe. And that's the thing that you lose a little bit now that we're we're seated off the court, and I get it. It's for tickets. It's not just in Philadelphia. It's basically almost every arena in the NBA. They've lifted the announcers off the floor, and we were on the court in prime real estate, and now they sell that real estate. Uh, and I get it. And But what you missed a lot of times was the facial reaction. Now there are a few places where we still get to sit on the court and it's almost like you want a, a fantasy. If you'll get to sit courtside in an NBA game, you know, you're like you're really fired up because it's a it's a treat to be able to be down there. And you miss you miss some of that when you're 
when you're up. Like, I'll find something out on social media or on television or reading the paper or after the game, like, oh, really? I, I was at that game. Mike Scott took a drink out of a fan's beverage in Milwaukee on St. Patrick's. Oh, and then you see it, and you're like, beverage, you know. There are a lot of things that you miss when you're not right there. Uh, but, oh, yeah, you, you could hear a lot of that. Hey, and unfortunately, you heard some of the things that were directed toward Allen uh, over the years on the on the sidelines. But, uh, yeah, that he, he definitely – he was a lightning rod in a lot of ways, and uh, you could hear a lot of that trash talk during the course of a game. How many times do you think during this year's NBA Finals will you just say LeBron, even though he's not out there on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I'm not. Uh, I'm sure he'll be mentioned early because it's <laughs> going to be weird not having him there. Right. Um, but you know, you really have to. It's all going to be about um, the two teams that do it because the two teams that get there this year, it's going to be quite an accomplishment. Uh, whether you know it's the East or the West, there's some other really good teams. It's not going to be an easy road uh, for either the East or the West champion, and you know you have to just focus on them. Although. I'm sure during the course of, of however many games is, and we always root for seven games, I think uh, there'll be graphics that'll show about, you know, great moments in finals history or great numbers, and LeBron's name's going to be there. And, you know, we'll, we'll I'm sure, show replays of, of what he did in past finals. So he'll, he'll be present in other ways. But it is going to be kind of different, the fact that uh, that he's not there. Yeah, I mean, he's been out there for more than half the finals that you've called, and now you're going to be courtside and you're not going to see LeBron. Yeah, well, the last eight plus the the one in '07, so right. so nine of the yeah. nine of the thirteen so far. Um, yeah, I, I've always like, for example, uh, Marv always had the had the uh, to me the privilege and honor of of being the voice when when uh, Michael Jordan had you know the, the zenith of his career, and I feel the same way. I think it's an honor and a and a privilege to call games of. You know these great players like Kobe Bryant. I've, I've done so many Kobe Bryant big games, and now LeBron's big games, and and Steph Curry's big games. So it's to be able to watch history because you know 30 years from now people are going to be talking about, oh, I remember when that guy LeBron James played, or remember when right. Steph Curry played, or Kobe Bryant. That's pretty cool. I, I'm jealous of the people who can talk about when they saw Wilton and Bill Russell uh, and those matchups. So uh, I think the same thing will happen 30 years down the line. From way downtown. Ten years ago when you took over for Hot Rod Hunley, what was the advice that you got, not from, not from him, but from anyone else, about what it was like to take over for a legend, given that you were just the, the second ever radio voice of the jazz? Maybe the best advice I got was from Hot Rod, actually, who said, just be you. Don't try to be someone else. Be you. Um, if a young broadcaster is listening to this, um, the greatest advice I would give them is stop calling plays for your resume tape. I mean, even today with Donovan and the revival of Donovan and what Donovan's done, I have to be careful to not make a call for a highlight. Like Donovan's so incredible that every now and then you try, you lose, you fake it, and people know the minute you're faking it. Um, I had one recently where I missed a great play. And then he did it again, and I could feel myself being like, oh, I missed that last one. I really got to give a highlight call on this one. And the call sucked. It was like mm. by far the worst call I've had all year. Um, and I hope you didn't play this. Some intro to me earlier today. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like, seriously, if I could go into the records and get rid of it. So I think that 
from Hot Rod, just be you, which is I really followed. And then just in general, I think authenticity carries the day. I, I you know, there was an era where you had to have a certain voice. I certainly don't have that. Um, there was an era where you had to call it in a certain way. I certainly don't believe in that. Um, I have a, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area listening to Greg Papa, and I always felt whenever I finished a game with Papa that I not only knew what had happened, but I knew how it happened, and I knew more about the game and the league at the end of the night. And so we hope to do that every night on the broadcast, but I think you have to do it with a level of authenticity or else people know it's, you're full of it. What, was it easy to be you? Um, I'm a little bit of a nut, so if I'm me, there aren't a lot of others like it. So thank goodness for the rest of the world. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm uh, saying, was it was it easy to be yourself right away? Oh, I mean, there was nothing easy. I don't know. I mean, people have real lives that are really hard, so I'm not going to. Following Hot Rod was not like the easiest thing I've ever done in my life, and having come off being fired uh, right beforehand probably added to that a little bit. Um, I mean, no, no different than any other job in the world or I certainly don't want to equate myself to an NBA player but you know you're better in your third year than in your fifth year and your seventh year and then you probably my eyesight's not as good as it once was and some of those kind of things are falling right because I'm getting old and but yet I probably understand the intricacies and pacing of broadcasting better so probably no different than anyone else in their career you just evolve I'm sure I listened back to my first year's tapes I would hear that I was had great angst and sucked um and hopefully I don't suck as much now. <laughs> uh, speaking of eyesight, where's your where's your seat at Jazz Games? Uh, we're on the last row of the lower bowl. We have a nice broadcast area, and that that bowl comes up pretty ver- with a pretty good pitch. It's made for basketball, not for hockey. Uh, so you can see the game pretty well. My eyesight would have to be trying to read game notes, not watching the game at this point. Have <laughs> What's been the conversation around the league from broadcasters and, and other media types about moving broadcasters and the media away from the floor? Well, I think that we probably are, we complained too much about it, uh, which was inevitable. And we didn't do a good enough job of asking for standards of our broadcast sites. Um, I don't have, frankly, people pay a lot of money to sit in pretty comparable seats to the one we have and they could see the game pretty well and feel the game. And I think that we should probably be quiet about that. There's a few sites where I can't see the whole floor and that's really frustrating. Um, Mm. You know, the fact that Boston and San Antonio don't have, at least in my, you know, it feels to me, I'm sure they do, but it feels to me as a broadcaster when you're calling the game, it's just that they have a disregard for your profession when you can't see the whole floor like that's hard like that yeah that's hard to swallow that someone puts you in a broadcast site where literally if the ball goes to the far corner i can't see who it is and what's happening because i have an obstructive view and it feels very insulting so that's probably something i need to get over but i wish that there was a just in these few sites that aren't great i wish there was a standard by which, you know, you're between the baselines, you have clear view to the entire 94 feet. Not not too complicated, but, you know, that happens. Hands down, man down. If you were to offer advice for someone 
who was going to replace you on a broadcast with Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, what advice would you have for them to working with those two guys? Um, let's see. The first advice uh, I would say is, is be prepared. Um, be prepared to just sit back when they get something real fun or something interesting going in terms of a debate back and forth. Just prepare and sit back and don't worry about uh, don't worry about talking because these guys are they're so good together their chemistry is so off the charts. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, uh, have a thick skin because they're going to make fun of you. And I think that's that's the beauty of working with those guys. Like we all make fun of each other, you know, several times during a broadcast, and and nobody has a thin skin. Um, you know, we all know it's 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 for entertainment. It's all to poke fun and. I, I don't know if I've ever worked with, with people that are, or, are like that where, you know, if Jeff says something on the air that I disagree with or I say something on the air that they disagree with, you know, we go after each other right away and question them and, and ask them, what are you talking about? And it's it's really fun. And I, I think it's really fun for the listener, too. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, I've known both of them for 25 years. And I think the most underrated part of what we do is having that chemistry where there's such a comfort level. And it's hard when you change partners all the time. I mean, you, you have some great ones, but when you've known somebody, you've been friends with somebody from 25 years, you just feel like you could say or do anything uh, with them on the air, and it's not going to be a problem. And and that's what's made it so much fun. I mean, Jeff basically taught me the NBA. When I first started with the Knicks, he was an assistant coach. And Mark was always one of my favorite players, and he has such a great big-picture perspective and he's seen it from both a player and a coach. Um, the amount of stuff I've learned from those two guys is incredible. So the other piece of advice uh, I would say to anybody who's worked with them is is uh, listen as much as you can to what they have to say. When you, Jeff, and Mark go out to dinner, who pays for dinner? <laughs> it's a rotating check. Oh. Now, if you ask Jeff, if you ask Jeff and Mark the same question, uh-huh. they'll tell you that I never pay. <laughs> but you can't believe a damn word they say. <laughs> So how about how about the first time you went to dinner? Who who is uh who who is the one to reach into the pocket first? You know what? I I don't know which one, but both and it 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 does pain me a little bit to say this uh say something nice about them, but they are two of the most generous people I've ever met. I've I've had times where Mark has come in and he's got Mark's got a great um uh taste for ties. And he's come in a lot of games, and I'll look to him, and I'll say, boy, I love that tie. And he'll nod his head, thanks. Next game we do, he gives me – he goes out and buys the same tie, and he gives me the tie. They, mm. the, the two of them are so generous. Uh, they're always paying for stuff. They're always doing things like that that, um, uh, like I said, uh, it, it hurts me to have to, to compliment them this way, but I have to tell the truth. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you are sitting around having dinner, are you talking business, NBA, or – family or otherwise you, you you can't even begin to to list the amount of topics that are discussed um it's it's um to me in some ways it's more fun than the games the dinners the rides to the arena um these guys they've got an opinion about everything now mark is not only you know he's obviously he's a brilliant basketball mind but he thinks he's a brilliant football baseball every other sport mind as well <laughs> And he has he has an opinion about everything. Jeff also has an opinion about everything, and usually looks at it from a different vantage point. I remember one time we had we had a discussion 
They'd probably get mad at me if I if I told the story, but I'll tell it anyway. <laughs> we had a discussion with, where we listed ten people, and and they wanted to know. All right, if this if this person, and it was somebody in our lives, either professional or social, if this person uh, died, would you go to their funeral if you were on vacation? <laughs> I mean, these are the kinds of different things they throw out. And it, I like you know, at that. first, you're looking like, oh, it's but it's it's hilarious. They just pick these topics and they go back and forth and yell back and forth. It is, like I said, the time off the air and the, the car rides and the dinners are, uh, or it's just much, uh, just as much fun, if not more, than the games. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.